0: Haven't met. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. uh, The guy who most Sundays gets to preach God's word, and I'm very excited to do that this morning as we keep working our way through this incredible book of the Bible uh, that we call the Book of Luke, uh, Luke's Gospel account. We are currently in chapter seven of a 24 chapter book. We've been going at this thing since the beginning of Advent, uh, so end of November of last year. And we're gonna keep going at it for probably the better part of another year or so with a rest stop or two along the way, Uh, one this summer, and then I think we're gonna pause for Advent uh, this year and step out of Luke for uh, those four or five gatherings that we have together in November, December of this year. And so so as not to belabor the point, because this is a fascinating story that we're gonna get into this morning, I'll go ahead and invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're gonna be. Uh, Today, verses 36 through 50, as you're turning there, uh, just a couple of announcements as a second pass at some things that we talked about last Sunday. Uh, If you're new to our church and you've never done this uh, along the way, I would encourage you to go on our website and fill out one of our digital Connect cards. You'll see it right there on the homepage, big blue box. It doesn't ask for a lot of information, just simply an attempt to try to get a conversation going with you to be able to reach out and connect with you Um, welcome you to our church, answer any questions you might have, uh, play a little bit of the get to know you game. Uh, And then along with that, a couple other things that James mentioned last Sunday, a couple of community opportunities, outreach opportunities um, uh, coming our way this upcoming Thursday, I believe it is, uh, tax day, April 15th. Uh, you can give more than your money to the government. You can give blood um, because we're gonna have a blood drive right here on our property. Uh, You can find out more about that by going to our website as well. And then while you're on the website, uh, another community opportunity going on right now. Um, We're seeking to onboard and uh, participate in whatever way we can as a church with some of the disaster relief stuff happening over in Noonan. Uh, And so if that's something that uh, you have uh, margin for, Uh, you're willing, you're able to uh, go explore that, would also commend the website to you. All of that is right there um, as you go to crosspointptc.com. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into this morning's passage and see where it takes us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the gift, the means of grace that it is to come together as the church to open up the scriptures, explore your word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, a non-moving beacon in a sea of moving beacons. Lord, I pray that you would ground us in the scriptures this morning, and that we would walk away, not just with a deeper understanding of who you are, Jesus, but with a different posture as it pertains to the outworking of our lives in light of the forgiveness that we found in you, a life of extravagant love, a life of extravagant worship, that we would be a people who would lay it all down at your feet. Whatever that means. If it means worship, if it means sacrifice, if it means letting go of fears, anxieties, doubts, whatever it is, Lord, that that we would find ourselves in the posture of the forgiven sinful woman that we're about to encounter in this morning's passage as as we exit this place. That would be a posture tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that we would keep coming back to your feet, Jesus, falling at your feet as a response to who you are and all that you've done for us. Thank you that we're forgiven as we come into this place this morning because of your finished work, our trust in you. We love you, in your name, Jesus, I pray, amen. So this morning's passage brings us face to face with with one of the clearest contrasts in all of the book of Luke. And and Luke is known for his contrast. We've seen it already as we uh, see forgiven sinners and scribes and Pharisees and how they respond to Jesus. Uh, But I'm not sure we see it any more clearly than we do in this morning's passage as we step into the pages of a story involving the inconsiderate contempt of a self-righteous man and the extravagant love of a forgiven sinner. a story that takes place, interestingly enough, in the home of a Pharisee, not to be confused with the stories found in the other gospel accounts involving a woman anointing Jesus with perfume in the house of a man named Simon. Those stories are different. They take place on Jesus' march toward Jerusalem later on in the gospel accounts the focus of those stories being on the seeming waste of the woman's perfume. In contrast, Luke's story takes place in the earliest days of Jesus's ministry in Galilee and focuses on the themes of sin, forgiveness, and love. As we pick up the story in verse 36, Luke tells us one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, here's part of what makes this story so intriguing. The last time we saw Jesus reclining at the dinner table, it was in the presence of a large company of sinners and tax collectors. Chapter five, very different crowd. In the house of Levi, you might recall. With the Pharisees and their scribes grumbling at Jesus's disciples, if you remember, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? not only were Levi and his friends considered ceremonially unclean, close proximity to them, a fast track to defilement, But to share a meal with such people was a sign of acceptance, of identification, of friendship, of brotherhood. In that case, chapter five, with societies disreputable. Jesus may as well have been seated at a table of lepers, as far as the scribes and Pharisees were concerned. Made no sense to those who perceived themselves to, to be righteous in the economy of God. And Jesus, as we saw, took that opportunity to leverage the criticism of the religious elite into a mission statement. As he answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A seat at the table of forgiveness for those who will acknowledge their sin, abandon themselves, and turn to Jesus in faith. Looking at this morning's passage, Jesus now finds himself at another dinner party in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. In the words of one commentator, it is a mark of Jesus' broad sympathies that he dined earlier with a publican and now with a Pharisee. A religious man, Simon is, committed to the code of morals and, and regulations by which the Pharisees abided taking a risk of sorts here in bringing Jesus into his home. Why, we don't know. Maybe it was to satisfy his curiosity. Maybe it was to see if Jesus measured up to his religious expectations. Luke doesn't give us Simon's motivation. He simply tells us that Simon extended the invitation and Jesus accepted it. Entering the home, in this case, not of one of society's disreputable, but rather one of society's religious elite. Verse 37 And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Scandalous. And in first century Palestine, Holmes had something uh, more of an open floor plan so that a guy like Simon would have hosted dinner guests in a courtyard of sorts with passers-by stopping to chat, perhaps even joining in with the festivities along the way. Right, none of that was uncommon. But what, what was incredibly uncommon, even shocking, is that a woman of the city shows up uninvited to the home of a Pharisee, a woman who had established a sinful reputation in the community. Believed by many scholars to have been a town prostitute, as the language Luke uses here is something of a euphemism for that kind of lifestyle. Surely unwelcome in the eyes of Simon, right? Her entrance into the house, in and of itself, an act of courage on her part. Remember, it was a Pharisee who could stand on a corner and look at a tax collector and say, I thank God I am not like that man. Right, to walk into the home of a Pharisee would have been taken uh, taking incredible courage uh, for most anybody, much less a woman identified in the community as a renowned sinner. But there's something that this woman understands, something that, as we're gonna see, Simon fails to understand. Namely, that apart from Jesus, she's completely without hope. And that it's at the feet of Jesus, the friend of sinners, that true forgiveness is found. And so Luke tells us she makes her way through the courtyard, picture this, and approaches the table where Jesus is sitting, his legs stretched out behind him, his feet away from the table, as was the custom of his day. And at first she simply stands there, overcome with emotion in the presence of Jesus, as would be the case for many of us. She begins to weep tears of gratitude and joy. Can you picture yourself there? perhaps in her shoes. Many scholars believe that this woman has had an encounter with Jesus sometime in the past, perhaps even having sat under his teaching, received cleansing and healing. As Jesus is gonna uh, go on to make clear through the sharing of a parable with Simon, this woman's presence and actions, they're an outworking of love in response to the forgiveness that she's found. In this case, a pool of tears big enough to wet the Savior's feet which leads her to to publicly uncover her hair and let it down, an act considered absolutely scandalous among respectable women in first century Palestine, revealing to us something of her unconcern with public opinion. The church needs more of that. She falls at the feet of Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair, and kisses them. She doesn't care what's going on in the room other than Jesus right in front of her. But lest we think her her actions thus far to be extravagant, maybe even a little over the top, she proceeds, Luke tells us, to take an alabaster flask of perfumed oil that she has in her possession and pours the oil on Jesus's feet. An incredible act of not only sacrifice, but humility. As such an anointing was typically reserved for a person's head. You might remember going back to chapter three where, where John the Baptist declared himself inferior uh, to Jesus, not worthy to untie Jesus's sandals. Remember that? And in Jesus's day, students uh, didn't typically pay tuition, but instead would do menial tasks of service for their teachers. But the one thing they would not do is untie a teacher's sandals. That, that was not an expectation. That was the job of a slave reserved for society's lowest of the low. You might recall John declaring, I'm not worthy to do that for Jesus. I don't deserve to even be so much as a slave of Christ. Here you see that same kind of John the Baptist humility in this woman taking on the menial task of a slave and anointing Jesus' feet. Caught up in a moment of worship, pouring out not only her perfume, but her heart. The perfume is simply symbolic of what's going on inside. Philip Ryken says in his commentary, As Luke has revealed the true identity of Jesus Christ, he has shown people responding to him in faith. Now he shows someone responding to him in love. Thus we see that a disciple is a lover. Jesus desires the affection of our hearts as well as the faith of our minds. So greet him, Riken says, with extravagant affection. Fall into the arms of his love. Bow at his feet in worship and weep for joy that all your sins are forgiven. That's the sermon application. That's it. There aren't six things to go out and do this week. The the call to action is simply to fall into the arms of Christ's love, to bow at the feet of Jesus in worship, to weep for joy like the forgiven woman that all of your sins have been forgiven. That's what extravagant forgiveness and grace compels, extravagant love and worship. Unfortunately, that's not what we see in the contrasting attitude of Simon the Pharisee. As Luke goes on to tell us in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. On the one hand, the feeling, sense of shock is understandable, right? Transpiring events like this were not culturally commonplace. On the other hand, we've seen this before in Luke's gospel account, have we not? The religious leaders standing in their own minds on one of the higher rungs of God's great ladder. So high up in the clouds of their own self-righteousness that the only direction to look is down. Unable to see their great need, perceiving themselves to be spiritually healthy in the eyes of God. Unwilling to accept Jesus' diagnosis of the sickness of sin in their own hearts refusing to fall at his feet in neediness and desperation for the the forgiveness that he offers. In this case, I mean, Luke's trying to tell us he's the Messiah, right? In this case, Simon determines that Jesus must not even be a prophet, much less the promised Messiah. After all, any good prophet would know what kind of woman this is and would refuse to allow such a sinner to come within arm's length. Simon's thinking it's merciless It's loveless. In the words of one commentator, he had an arctic heart, a permafrost of the soul. You see what Luke's doing here. He's presenting us with with two contrasting responses to Jesus, two very different understandings of sin and grace. Simon sought to make his judgment about Jesus. The sinful woman had already done so trusting that in Jesus the forgiveness of her sins was secured meanwhile Simon scandalized by a thought of a seat at the table of forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus is offering verse 40 and Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher right no lord no master there not even prophet say it teacher Jesus reveals himself to to be the prophet that Simon is certain Jesus isn't as he not only expresses an awareness of who this woman of the city is, a forgiven sinner overwhelmed with extravagant love, but also an awareness of who Simon is, a self-righteous man overwhelmed with inconsiderate contempt, which Jesus goes on to make plain in confronting Simon's thinking and attitude with a parable, one of the simplest parables in all of the gospels. He says in verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Denarius was the equivalent to a day's wage. And so you're you're talking about the difference between a, a debt amounting to a month and a half's pay versus a debt amounting to a year and a half's pay significant gap there, right? Jesus tells the story of two debtors with significantly different sized debts, both unable to pay what was required, both forgiven of their loans as an act of the moneylender's mercy and grace. And Jesus asked Simon, one of the simplest questions in all of the gospel accounts, which one of these debtors will love the moneylender more? It doesn't take a whole lot of contemplation on Simon's part. Simon answered verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Rather unenthusiastic, right? I suppose that one. Simon sense is where, where Jesus is going with all this. This is not a lesson on financial peace. This is, this is a lesson on the debt of sin and the grace of God. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. That's a... That's a leprechaun riding a unicorn in the Gospels. It's one of the few times in, in all of Scripture where we're told that a Pharisee makes a right judgment. Jesus says to Simon, Right answer. And then he proceeds to make his point in connecting the parable he's just told to the reality right in front of Simon the Pharisee's eyes. Verse 44 Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon had failed to treat Jesus with honor in refusing to provide him with the most basic hospitality. No basin of water for the washing of Jesus' feet. No greeting of a kiss on the cheek as was customary in the ancient Near East. No anointing of Jesus' head with oil. Yes, Simon had invited Jesus into his home, but he had failed to treat Jesus with love and respect. My goodness, there might be a, a Bible Belt lesson there. Perceiving, Simon, all the while that it was the woman of the city who had missed it. When in fact, it was Simon, the loveless one. You even get the indication that the woman is still kissing Jesus' feet as this parable is being unpacked, exceeding Simon in every way, wetting Jesus' feet, not, not with water, but tears of gratitude, kissing and anointing not Jesus' cheek and head, but his feet in servant hearted humility. Why? In closing out this morning's passage, Jesus answers that question for us. Verse 47, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Right, we saw that with the story of the paralytic. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace not to say that the woman's acts of extravagant love are the basis of her forgiveness. That would com- conflict with the very parable that Jesus has just told, right? A parable in which extravagant debt forgiven compels extravagant love. Not to mention the fact that Jesus says, verse 50, that it's the woman's faith that saved her. And, and more appropriately, the object of her faith, Jesus. Forgiven not because she loved, but rather because she believed. In fact, when Jesus says, verse 48, your sins are forgiven, the the Greek word translated are forgiven, it's a perfect tense verb. Perfect tense defined as a completed action of the past producing ongoing effects in the present. So that the most literal word for word translation, some of you have this in your Bibles, would be your sins have been forgiven. Again, it's why many scholars believe that That this is not this woman's first encounter with Jesus. Perhaps having sat under his teaching, received his cleansing and healing in the past. That what Jesus is saying is is that love is the evidence of forgiveness. Perhaps Simon's sins were perceivably smaller than the sinful woman's, but he was a debtor too, nonetheless, both people in the parable owing a debt that neither could pay, desperate for the mercy and grace of the moneylender. N.T. Wright in his commentary on this passage says, the Pharisee has never come to terms with the depths of his own heart and so doesn't appreciate God's generous love when it sits in person at his own table. For Luke, true faith is what happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness. And the sign and proof of this faith is love. What James means when he says, faith without works is dead. The true sign of faith is, is an outworking of gratitude, worship, and love. The woman does what Simon fails to do, motivated by the forgiveness she knows can only be found in Jesus, well aware of the wages of her sin. She's very Pauline in that sense, knowing that the wages of sin is death. She's more aware of her sin than any of the religious leaders in her community. In the words of one commentator, she probably forgot more of her sins than they would ever be aware of. She knows the hopelessness of her debt before God, a debt she has no ability to repay. Desperate for mercy, poor in spirit, empty-pocketed, spiritually bankrupt. But she also knows that Jesus is mighty to save, offering forgiveness to the vilest of sinners, believing that that Jesus could forgive her many sins, that God's grace in Jesus Christ is bigger than her laundry list of improprieties, that he could stamp a new identity on her that was no longer renowned sinner, but forgiven sinner. In the words of one commentator, to be a big sinner, it's not the worst thing. To not ask forgiveness through faith in Jesus is. In preparing for this sermon, I read of a pastor who was, sharing the gospel with a woman when she stopped in mid-sentence. Honey, God gave up on me a long time ago. To which he replied, honey, you don't know Jesus. See it in the words of Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's the forgiveness of God. That's the word picture for the forgiveness of God. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you a great sinner? Am I a great sinner? Yes and amen. Is he a greater Savior, Jesus Christ? Hallelujah. The story of the sinful woman forgiven is very simple in its meaning. It means that there's hope for any sinner who will acknowledge their sin, abandon themselves, and turn to Jesus in faith, which is the entirety of the Christian life, by the way. Martin Luther said, the first of his 95 theses, the entire Christian life is one of repentance. It's one of coming back to the feet of Jesus Christ over and over and over again, abandoning ourselves, turning to him. As we saw in the story of the centurion servant, that the great theme is that of God's salvation to those who come to Jesus in humility, acknowledging their unworthiness and desperate need for Him. And out of the ashes of that self abandonment comes a life of love, in grateful response to the true forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. Like the faith that surely showed itself authentic in the forgiven woman's humble, Christ honoring, servant hearted attitude and actions. I love the way R.C. Sproul paints a picture of this morning's passage. He says, all who came to Simon the Pharisee's house that evening came for a party, but this woman came to go to church. She came because Jesus was there and she came to worship him, to adore him, to praise him, to thank him, to honor him, to glorify him and to serve him. This was not a token offering of praise and thanksgiving. This was an extravagant act of worship coming from a woman who had experienced extravagant grace for the forgiveness of her sins. This passage, it invites us to search our hearts to see whether there be an extravagant love there. A debt of love for Christ born out of the debt he paid for our sins. But I would ask, have you... Have you heard those sweetest of words wash over you? The words that Jesus spoke over the sinful woman. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. And I don't just mean when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian. I mean, have you heard it recently? Have you heard those words of Jesus wash over you recently so that they've had recent effect on your life and the outworking of extravagant love and gratitude and worship? Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus, not just theologically, but experientially, and the life of love and gratitude that flows from the forgiveness that's found in him? In the words of one commentator, not just tears and perfume, but a life poured out in love for Jesus. He who's been forgiven much loves much, and in Christ, our forgiveness runs far deeper than we even know. And so the invitation this morning as we continue to worship together is simple. Going back to that Philip Ryken quote, it's to fall at his feet, to worship him, to pour out your heart in gratitude, thanksgiving, and love for the forgiveness that you've been given in Jesus. We get to do that with our song. We get to do that through the receiving of the Lord's Supper together. If you missed it on your way in, there are Communion cup's on the back table. You're welcome to go grab one of those over the course of these last two songs. Whenever you're ready to receive of the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, and to dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, you're welcome to do so. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. What a beautiful opportunity as we see Jesus sharing a meal around a table and we see the beauty of a picture of forgiveness to receive the meal of the bread and the cup this morning and to know that it represents a picture of forgiveness, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ in whom our debt has been paid in full.